Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. It is June 2nd, 2021, and we're broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. How are you this morning? I'm doing I'm doing well. It's a beautiful morning here in Colorado. And how are you doing this morning, David? I'm doing okay. I'm excited for our conversation today because it's right up your alley. It's right in the realm of supply chain management, which is one of the courses you teach at university. And it's really happening right now. So I'm excited to talk about how the world got to a point where everything was so efficient that it was unable to handle any adversity. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. Uh, uh, we're not going to really analyze it. Well, we're probably I probably can't help but analyzing it too much, a little bit. Uh, but we'll just talk about it on how, how we got to the place where we are now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and where are we going from here? And uh, what, back, back last year, uh, when the pandemic hit, and people says, oh, we're going to go back to normal. And I kept saying, no, we're not. Uh, we're going to be learning from this. So that's what we're going to talk about today a little bit. Mm-hmm. So should we just jump straight into the article? Sure. This is an article from uh, the New York Times that you found uh, that uh, was uh, published on June 1st. And uh, and it talked about uh, how the world run out of everything. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, it took a while, but then it's one thing to run out. It's the other thing. How do you come back? Mm-hmm. And so that's what this is probably why uh, running out is so important. People run out of things every day. The question is, how do you come back? Yes. And so you can the the resilience of these supply chains to come back to fill the shelves back. And the way they do that is not necessarily uh, how they how they fill them up in the first place, because how they fill them up in the first place took took uh, a long time of production. Uh, but you've got to do it very quickly now. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so what the article did, I read it, and, and it's a good article. Uh, it's kind of like highlights different things, and they do. And they do. Uh, Peter Goodman uh, and also Niraj Chaksi, they do a good job interviewing people. Uh, and actually, before we get into the content of the article, I just want to say that I, uh, I have a lot of respect for journalists and a lot of respect for writers and people that, that research these stories. Uh, they are professionals, uh, and they did a good job uh, getting some major points. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't go into depth uh, uh, naturally because it's just an article, but they do a great job uh, highlighting important points. And I, I have a lot of respect for uh, journalists. Uh, Peter Goodman and Niraj Chosky, uh, uh shout out to them. Well done in this article. Great. Um, so let's get started with... How the world ran out of everything. Global shortages of many goods reflect the disruption of the pandemic combined with decades of companies limiting their inventories. In the story of how the modern world was constructed, Toyota stands out as the mastermind of a monumental advance in industrial efficiency. The Japanese automaker pioneered so-called just-in-time manufacturing, in which parts are delivered to factories right as they are required minimizing the need to stockpile them. Over the last half century, this approach has captivated global business and industries far beyond autos. From fashion to food, processing to pharmaceuticals, 
companies have embraced just-in-time to stay nimble, allowing them to adapt to changing market demands while cutting costs. But the tumultuous events of the past year have challenged the merits of pairing inventories while reinvigorating concerns that some industries have gone too far, leaving them vulnerable to disruption. As the pandemic has hampered factory operations and sown chaos in global shipping, many economies around the world have been bedeviled by shortages of a vast range of goods, from electronics to lumber to clothing. In a time of extraordinary upheaval in the global economy, just in time is running late. It's sort of like supply chain run amok, said Willie C. Shi, an international trade expert at Harvard Business School. In a race to get to the lowest cost, I have concentrated my risk. We are at the logical conclusion of all of that. The most prominent manifestation of too much reliance on just-in-time is found in the very industry that invented it. Automakers have been crippled by a shortage of computer chips. Vital car components produced mostly in Asia. Without enough chips on hand, auto factories from India to the United States to Brazil have been forced to halt assembly lines. But the breadth and persistence of the shortages reveal the extent to which the just-in-time idea has come to dominate commercial life. This helps explain why Nike and other apparel brands struggle to stock retail outlets with their wares. It's one of the reasons construction companies are having trouble purchasing paints and sealants. It was a principal contributor to the tragic shortages of personal protective equipment early in the pandemic, which left frontline medical workers without adequate gear. Just in time has amounted to no less than a revolution in the business world. By keeping inventories thin, major retailers have been able to use more of their space to display a wider array of goods. Just in time has enabled manufacturers to customize their wares, and lean production has significantly cut costs while allowing companies to pivot quickly to new products. These virtues have added value to companies, spurred innovation, and promoted trade, ensuring that just-in-time will retain its force long after the current crisis abates. The approach has also enriched shareholders by generating savings that companies have distributed in the form of dividends and share buybacks. Still, the shortages raise questions about whether some companies have been too aggressive in harvesting savings by slashing inventory, leaving them unprepared for whatever trouble inevitably emerges. It's the investments that they don't make, says William Lazonic, an economist at the University of Massachusetts. Intel, the American chip maker, has outlined plans to spend $20 billion to erect new plants in Arizona, but that is less than the $26 billion that Intel spent on share buybacks in 2018 and 2019, money the company could have used to expand capacity, Mr. Lazonic said. Some experts assume the crisis will change the way companies operate prompting some to stockpile more inventory and forge a relationship with extra suppliers as a hedge against problems. But others are dubious, assuming that, same as after past crises, the pursuit of cost savings will again trump other considerations. That is the opening section. Let's discuss. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it's a good opening. He, they, they lay it out pretty well. Uh, they say, uh, well... You know, they, they talk about just-in-time. Uh, just-in-time really is a manufacturing technique, uh, and I think when they apply it to supply chains, it will lower inventory, uh, but also uh, you have to be, it is, it is, it also increases risk, and they're going to talk about that, I think. But, 
Yeah, they talk about just in time, and it's easy to talk about uh, just in time uh, manufacturing technique applied to supply chains. But uh, but really, the uh, the idea is the the motivation to use just in time, and they did address that. Uh, where Starkold is looking at lower cost, lower cost, lower cost. Uh, you can lower you can lower cost a lot of ways, but then it raises your risk of running out of inventory. And so that's exactly what they're talking about. But also any disruptions uh, uh, that you have in your supply chain uh, is also um, enhanced with change in your de- changes in your demand. In your, in your demand, the demand changed, the the sources changed. The logistics changed, everything changed. So it's not just just in time. So that's just one of many things that were a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, now you teach operations. You have a PhD in operations research. Lot sizing and lot timing. Now these auto companies, they said we don't need chips. No one's going to buy cars because there's a pandemic. Everyone's going to lose their jobs. And then things bounce back faster. And they said, okay, we need chips now. But there's a lot timing issue. You can't just say dibs on chips and get them right away. You need to give them six, nine months lead time to make sure that they're manufacturing at a level that that's, that's contracted. How does a company as sophisticated as General Motors or Ford not know this or not see this? Well, I think I think uh, it's driven. Oh, well, I don't know what they do at their boardroom. I don't know what they do inside General Motors and how they do it. I don't know what the automobile bankers are doing uh, in the companies, but from uh, looking on the outside in, from an analytic and academic standpoint, uh, what you do is you don't put yourself at risk so much. Uh, yeah, you can you can pander to the stakeholders, but you've got to have some risk control in there, uh, not only with your, your suppliers, but also with your production uh, and also with your demand forecasts mm-hmm. and also having more uh, uh, your in your ERP downstream to know what the markets are going to be doing, and uh, having more of a risk analysis throughout the supply chain, not just parts of it. And you can't be driven by money. Uh, uh, money is going to be very important. It, it's essential, but it's not everything. Uh, so risk also is with it. It, it has to be considered too. Mm-hmm. So you have your your cost is one thing, but service level is another thing. And then risk is a third leg to this to this stool that have to, has to be talked about. And I think uh, risk analysis, people do not want to pay for risk when uh, negative, when events don't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're paying for something that doesn't happen. But the more you pay, the less it happens. Uh, and so uh, it's a really difficult thing to invest in. It's like insurance. But I think in the, it's like insurance. But in the future, I think people start looking at risk much more. Also, uh, people put all their eggs in one basket uh, and also were driven by finances, which is which is valuable, which is important too, to grow. But on the other hand, when things began to change and we start coming back, uh, you don't come back the way you were. You come back better than, better than what you were. In, in addition to resilience, uh, you have to be really responsive and agile two changes in in what's going to be happening. Mm-hmm. So when things start changing, the agility kicks in. Uh, but then if things fall apart, that agility allows you to shift toward being resilient. And uh, people weren't ready for it. Yeah. I was reading some financial articles before we go back to the main article. 
And they were saying, this guy was doing an analysis, and he's saying, the housing prices are skyrocketing. And you know, we hope there's not another 2008 housing crisis. But he says one thing that's leading existing home prices to be through the roof is that lumber and construction materials, the supply costs of those are out of whack because the supply chains are out of whack. So to build a new house, the actual cost of materials, and therefore the total cost of the project is higher, and therefore that raises the value of existing houses. His worry is that as supply chains get ironed out, people will be underwater on a $800,000 loan for a $400,000 house because their house is overvalued right now and everyone's trying to buy. Mm-hmm. So the ripple effect is going to be in the, in the mortgage industry as well. Mm-hmm. But because those, because one thing is the, is the supply. The other thing is the logistics of getting it, getting it different places. And yes. uh, you can't ship it. Uh, even if you have the supply, even if you have it, it's stockpiled, you can't ship it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's so much demand. Uh, and even if you ship it, how do you store it? Uh, and so it, it's, uh, uh, and if the housing is is affected, what about uh, the logistics? Uh, what about sales? What about uh, retail? Uh, everything's going to be, everything's going to be affected. So when you think of a supply chain, you got to be careful that uh, every supply chain is not an island. Uh, every supply chain really is part of a whole theater of connected uh, network. Yes, and I mean, I think it's interesting, like you say, that's a good point, but the cost of lumber and steel is up. And this may have, this may cause the mortgage market to go up or down in 18 months. So how do you position yourself as an investor to take advantage of that? Well, you certainly can short term. Uh, and, uh, but well, the investment, <laughs> the, and how will, will that significant change in mortgage investment, uh, affect your other investment, port, the other parts of your portfolio, mm-hmm. you know, how it's going to affect that too. So it, again, the ripple effect, the financial ripple effect is going to be there as well. I think you're right, David. Um, shall we get back to the article? Sure. Okay. Do you want me to read or do you want to read? Uh, Chaos on the Seas. Uh, I guess I'll read it. Uh, The shortages in the world economy stem from factors beyond lean inventories. The spread of COVID-19 has sidelined port workers and truck drivers. Impeding the unloading and distribution of goods made at factories in Asia and arriving by ship to North America and Europe. The pandemic has slowed sawmill operations causing a shortage of lumber that has stymied home building in the United States. Winter storms that shut down petrochemical plants in the Gulf of Mexico have left key products in short supply. Andrew Romanoff, who runs sales at a chemical company outside Philadelphia, has grown accustomed to telling his customers they must wait on their orders. You have a confluence of forces, he said. It just ripples through the supply. Dramatic increases in demand made pet food scarce and grape nut cereal all but disappear from American store shelves for a time. 
Some companies were especially exposed to such forces given that they were already running lean as the crisis began. And many businesses have combined a dedication to just-in-time with a reliance on suppliers in low-wage countries like China and India, making any disruption to global shipping an immediate problem. That has amplified the damage when something goes awry, as when enormous vessels lodged in the Suez Canal last year, or this year, uh, closing the primary channel linking Europe and Asia. Most read business stories. One, one-fifth of U.S. beef what? I know, I, I thought, I know I was. I was going to read them anyway, because I think, okay, go on to the article. No, uh, most read business stories in the article. Oh, it's not in your article. It's in mine. They, they talk about five other things that were going at the same time, talking about how interrelated things are. Talking about the beef, talking about uh, construction, talking about uh, uh, market crashes, talking about uh, warehouse workers, uh, Amazon uh, warehouse rules and it, for pot. They so the the uh, uh, workers, you know, the workers. So here's five different. It's not just uh, just in time manufacturing. It, it's it's it starts. It's everywhere. You can start with just in time. That's one thing, definitely. But there's a lot of other things that it affected as well. So it's not just one thing. Okay. Uh, that's kind of what I was going to just kind of talk about a little bit. People adopted that kind of lean mentality. And then they applied it to supply chains with the assumption that they would have low cost and reliable shipping, said she, the Harvard Business School trade expert. Then you have some shocks to the system. And that, that's what this was, the, the bullets were about. And the, and the shocks to the system then, one shock could just ripple through and then all of a sudden things ground to a halt. That's right. That's right. Well, just in time, it began with Toyota in, in Japan after World War II. It be, uh, just in time is a manufacturing technique, which, you know, you, you, you cut down your inventory and it, it happens. You only produce things just when you need them. And so you lower inventory and it's all uh, very uh, streamlined. Uh, that concept then becomes applied to services, for logistics, for production, for uh, uh, suppliers uh, downstream to, uh, it, it's applied to the supply chain. So it's the concept that's applied. So when I say Jay, just in time manufacturing, I say just in time manufacturing concept. <laughs> I mute myself when you read and I've been talking this whole time. But people got the point of what I was saying. I was talking about just-in-time manufacturing. I mute myself so you don't hear me while you're reading, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So I apologize. I've been muted for the last five minutes. Um, I heard you. Yeah, I know. Because Skype's not muted. Just the broadcast is muted. Okay. Well, so yes, just-in-time manufacturing is being applied to every industry. 
But just in time manufacturing, it's initially like you get the part in the receiving dock and then it goes onto the production line that day. You don't have a warehouse full of the parts. Now people are applying that to grape nuts or, or things where there's no real manufacturing involved. And supermarkets applying it to how it orders food so that there's not a big area in the back of the store where there's a big pallet full of grape nuts. The grape nuts come into the receiving dock and they go right onto the shelves. Um, well, the receiving dock no longer is warehouses. It's called it's called cross docking. Uh, they'll come into a warehouse. They take it off the trucks inbound, put it on the trucks outbound, and leave the same day. There's no inventory, mm-hmm. and so it's it's the just in time manufacturing concept of, of from the manufacturer all the way down to the to the retailer or the customer. And so it does lower inventory. So therefore, well, the inventory has an enormous asset uh, uh, signature and footprint. And so if you can lower that, you're going to lower, lower cost. Mm-hmm. When you lower cost, your margin goes up and your profitability goes up. So that's why people do it. Also, I mean, in America, anyway, I don't know what the tax code is in every country in the world. But inventory plays a big factor on your tax burden. Yeah, because it's an asset, and mm-hmm. it's it's a huge asset on your on your balance sheets, right? Yeah. So if you don't, if you're not carrying any inventory, your tax burden will be lower. So it all makes sense. But I guess the thing is, and this is what we're learning about the world. You know, you can optimize for something, but you're going to get that, uh, and you don't know if that's necessarily the solution. You know, you're putting short-term profits ahead of long-term resiliency. And that's fine for the short term. Uh, And also, there have been events. There have been hurricanes and earthquakes and uh, and, uh, cyber attacks. So there has been small disruptions. Uh, But uh, the pandemic brought to the forefront how vulnerable are our supply chains, our global supply chains, mm-hmm. and all of the supply chains? How interconnected are they? And so it brought it brought to uh, uh, brought to light the, the vulnerability, and also the need for uh, a more of a uh, uh, robust risk uh, analysis and also risk mitigation uh, before, as we go forward, uh, and not just in individual supply chains but maybe in a, in a global theater kind of thing. So hopefully the global uh, uh, audience will come together and say, let's let's just start having uh, a broader view because in the long term, it's going to be beneficial. I find it similar to uh, in sustainability, the triple bottom line. You know, the single bottom line used to be just economics, and now the triple bottom line is economic, the planet, uh, people and uh, profit planet and people, uh, economic, uh, environmental, and socioeconomic, uh, social political. The triple bottom line, but also I think resilience uh, is also going to be a third one for risk analysis mm-hmm. to, to to move forward. Uh, and that's what, in, like you said, you mentioned before, insurance. Uh, you have insurance for things to go wrong because things, things will go wrong. <laughs> yeah. And so prepare for it. And so that's a good, that's just good business. Good, uh, strengthening your position, 
So when things do go wrong, you do have a, a uh, something. You do have a plan ready, a crisis management plan ready to go. Mm -hmm. And I think hopefully our supply chains will start doing that. So you want to uh, get to the next section? Sure. An idea that went, quote, way too far. Just in time was itself an adaptation to turmoil, as Japan mobilized to recover from the devastation of World War II. Densely populated and lacking in natural resources, Japan sought to conserve land and limit waste. Toyota eschewed warehousing while choreographing production with supplies to ensure that parts arrived when needed. By the 1980s, companies around the globe were emulating Toyota's production system. Management experts promoted just-in-time as a way to boost profits. Companies that run successful lean programs not only save money in warehouse operations, but enjoy more flexibility, declared a 2010 McKinsey presentation for the pharmaceutical industry. It promised savings of up to 50% on warehousing if clients embraced its lean and mean approach to supply chains. Such claims have panned out. Still, one of the authors of that presentation, Knut Alec, a McKinsey partner based in Germany, now says the corporate world exceeded prudence. We went way too far, Mr. Alex said in an interview. The way that inventory is evaluated will change after the crisis. Many companies acted as if manufacturing and shipping were devoid of mishaps, Mr. Alec added, while failing to account for trouble in their business plans. There's no kind of disrupt disruption risk term in there, he said. Experts say that omission represents a logical response from management to the incentives at play. Investors reward companies that produce growth in their return on assets. Limiting goods and warehouses improves that ratio. To the extent that you can keep reducing inventory, your books look good. Man Mohan S. Sodhi, supply chain expert at City University of London Business School. From 1981 to 2000, American companies reduced their inventories by an average of 2% a year. So that's what, 19 years? That's 38%. They've reduced their inventory by 38%, roughly. I mean, if it's a proportional 2%, maybe less. Um, these savings help finance another, another shareholder-enriching trend, the growth of share buybacks. In the decade leading up to the pandemic, American companies spent more than $6 trillion to buy their own shares, roughly tripling the purchase, their purchases. According to a study by the Bank for International Settlements, companies in Japan, Britain, France, Canada, and China increased their buybacks fourfold, through their, though their purchases were a fraction of their American counterparts. Repurchasing stock reduces the number of shares in circulation, lifting their value. But the benefits for investors and executives whose pay packages include hefty allocations of stock, have come at the expense of whatever the company might have otherwise done with that money, investing to expand capacity or stockpiling parts. These costs became conspicuous during the first wave of the pandemic, when major economies, including the United States, discovered they lacked capacity to quickly make ventilators. When you need a ventilator, you need a ventilator, Mr. Sodi said. You can't say, well, my stock price is high. When the pandemic began, car manufacturers slashed orders for chips on the expectation that demands for cars would plunge. By the time they realized that demand was reviving, it was too late. Ramping up production of computer chips requires months. The impact to production will get worse before it gets better, said Jim Farley, the chief executive of Ford Motor, which has long embraced lean manufacturing. Speaking to stock analysts on an April 28th, the company said the shortages would probably derail half of its production through June. The automaker least affected by the shortage is Toyota. 
From the inception of Just-In-Time, Toyota relied on suppliers clustered close to its base in Japan, making the company less susceptible to events far away. So, the Japanese strike again. It's like, okay, we're going to do Just-In-Time, but we need to build resiliency into the system. So they do it intelligently. And I think the point of that is, I'm sure they're paying more by clustering suppliers close to them, a little bit more. But it's building some resiliency into the system in case of something like this. Well, the reason Japan, uh, as the story goes, as history, uh, uh, as history says, uh, Japan uh, did this out of necessity. Mm-hmm. It wasn't by design. In other words, after World War II. Uh, you know, like they had limited resources, a sentence up here, uh, not even a phrase, what what do you say? Um, Densely populated, lacking in natural resources. Well, that's just a phrase. But really what happened was, is that Japan, after World War II, their manufacturing was decimated. It it was gone. Uh, Their resources was was very, that's true, was limited. uh, And they rebuilt from scratch, basically. And when they rebuilt from scratch, they didn't have huge warehouses. The United States did have huge warehouses. They did not. And so out of necessity, they said, we don't have the room to have all this inventory like the United States or even even, uh, Europe. And so how do we build? And actually, after World War II, the United States went over there and helped them rebuild uh, their infrastructure. And, and one person that did that was W. Edwards Deming went over there. And actually, it was arranged by Douglas MacArthur. So they went over there and began building and helped them build. And when they did that, uh, W. Edwards Deming was uh, a well-known quality expert uh, that uh, out of uh, uh, Schenectady, New York, And he went over there and began uh, saying, well, if you're building from scratch, here are some quality concepts and issues. And and it laid out a quality plan that the United States did not embrace because they didn't need to. They had all the capacity. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have the capacity. And so they started looking at the quality. So it was more of out of a necessity. But when they did it, they did it extremely well. Uh, in other words, that not when they when when the Japanese did that at, back in the 1940s, it wasn't like well let's try this. No, they threw everything into it, and uh, the the workforce, the design, the labor, uh, the the uh, the managers, everything, even their culture, was around building the country. Their nationalism. Uh, was so strong, much stronger than ours was. And uh, so the whole country came back to building back their their nation. And so it was out of necessity, but also it wasn't just manufacturing. It was the whole country's culture was was building that. It was very interesting. And that's why they began in the 50s and the 60s overtake some of our markets because they had high quality. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the production part, JIT, from Ono and uh, uh, Ishikawa, uh, that's the Japanese. What they did over there 
uh, from, well, well, Deming encouraged them, but they developed their own. But then, then it was brought over here because we, 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 uh, they captured markets. I guess I'm starting to get into too much detail. But my point is that they were pretty much, uh, they, they had to do that. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to, so we didn't. That's why back last year in 2020, when this pandemic hit and our supply chains went down, it devastated a lot of our, our networks that we have. Mm -hmm. We were forced to look at things that we never looked at before. And so humanity, the humans, usually don't do things unless they're forced to do them. Mm -hmm. So one value of this pandemic is forcing us to look at how we produce things and what our supply chains are. So you can you can point to different things, but you have to back up and look at the bigger picture. And I think that's what the bigger companies are starting to do. Mm -hmm. And when they come back, they're going to come back in a much more robust, resilient, and agile type supply chains than they had before. Uh, Maybe, so, unless the supply shortages help them to maximize profit. There, there's always drivers. There's always dr drivers. But I believe that the ones that are going to last are the ones who are going to be looking long range. Mm -hmm. Not just to exploit the current situation. Right. Right. Shall we? And actually, oh. actually, that's the consultants, the academic and business consultants that are going in should really think that way. The consultants that go in and consult these companies with a fast payback, uh, they, have, they have to be careful because they're not going to last there long because within a few years, the people with long-term are going to overtake the short-term because, because not because of the pandemic, but because of technology. Things go much faster now than they did before. Mm -hmm. Back in the 40s, it took 20 years to come back. They didn't really capture markets till the 60s. Today, when we come bring our supply chains back, they will come back and the more robust supply chain designs will come back than the, the fast, fast buck supply chains. They'll come back within a year, within a year, two years. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Anyway. That's it's, my it's, that's my prediction. It sounds like not many are robust, though. The system's been They're designed not, to take out the resiliency. I think I think it was never in. It was never in totally. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think in the future it will be, and those companies that do, sustainability is the same thing. People didn't sustainability. That's costly. We don't do that. We want to have, but then people are beginning to realize the sustainable companies are going to last longer. Mm-hmm. Especially when things happen faster, unless in the, unless in the uh, ramping up your sustainability, you get outcompeted by your competitors and you go bankrupt. I know you have to. You're absolutely right. So you that's why people did the sustainability slowly back in the in the nineties, mm -hmm. two thousand. But what, that's what I'm saying. Today, the resiliency of supply chains has to be there because. Um, because things are happening so quickly. Yeah. It's and not in the 40s and 50s. It was decades in the 90s. It, it was years. Uh, and I think today it's months. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, shall we finish the article? OK, so one more section. Mm -hmm. it, it all, all ca it all cascades.
Go ahead. You want to read it? Okay. It all cascades. Uh, okay, we start with the name. In Con Shohokan. Did I say that right, David? That sounds about right. In Conshohokan, Pennsylvania, Romano is lit literally waiting for his ship to come in. He is vice president of sales at Van Horn Medicine Company, which buys chemicals from suppliers around the world and sells them to factories that make paint, ink, and other industrial products. In normal times, the company is behind in filling perhaps 1% of its customers' orders. On a recent morning, it could not complete a tenth of its orders because it was waiting for supplies to arrive. The company could not secure enough of a specialized resin that it sells to manufacturers that make construction materials. The American supplier of the resin was itself lacking one element that it purchases from a petrochemical plant in China. One of Romano's regular customers, a paint manufacturer, was holding off on ordering chemicals because it could not locate enough of the metal cans it uses to ship it to ship its fi uh, finished product. It all cascades, Romano said. It's just a mess. No pandemic was required to reveal the risks of over-reliance on just-in-time combined with global supply chains. Experts have warned about the consequences for decades. In 1999, an earthquake shook Taiwan, shutting down computer chip manufacturing. The earthquake and tsunami that shattered Japan in 2011 shut down factories and impeded shipping, generating shortages of auto parts and computer chips. Floods in Thailand the same year decimated production of computer hard drives. Each disaster prompted talk that companies needed to boost their inventories and diversify their suppliers. Each time, multinational companies carried on. The same consultants who promoted the virtues of lean inventories now evangelize about supply chain resilience, the buzzword of the moment. Simply expanding warehouses may not provide the fix, said Richard Lebovitz, president of Lean DNA, a supply chain consultant based in Austin, Texas. Product lines are increasingly customized. The ability to predict what inventory you should keep is harder and harder, he said. Ultimately, businesses is, business is likely to further its embrace of lean for the simple reason that it has yielded profits. The real question is, are we going to stop chasing low cost as a sole criteria for business judgment, said she from Harvard Business School. I'm skeptical of that. Consumers won't pay for resilience when they are not in crisis. True. Good way to end. Um, again, this is written by, uh, let me, who, who are the authors again? This is written by uh, Peter Goodman and Niraj Chatsi. Again, my I, I really respect uh, writers, and I think they did a really good job writing this. It's short, but it, it, it covers a lot of really important points. Uh, not so much in detail, but they ended well, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Consumers will not pay for resilience when they're not in crisis. That is very true, don't you think? That's right. Uh, the people and even companies, especially in the United States, uh, are more reactionary. They, they react to things rather than be proactive. Mm -hmm. 
and that's just we've always been that way and you can grow fast but then you got to be proactive in some in some cases well you know it's like uh, slapping an organic sticker on a piece of produce and charging twice as much people think that they're doing something noble by eating an organic apple instead of an apple well it's difficult to say this you know carburetor cost twice as much, but it was manufactured in a resilient supply chain. People don't have any virtue for for that. That's not something you can sort of sell to the end consumer. Yeah. So I think in the future, and I'm sure these people at the in academics will say this, that in the future, it's not it's not bipolar. <laughs> it's not one or the other. Mm-hmm. You have to come in the middle and start combining that with what you're doing slowly and that needs to be part of your design going going forward yeah and i mean you could also say you eke out a living you know just because you're trying your best you're doing everything you can but you have a resilient supply chain and then when the storm comes you have a forest gump bubble gum shrimp type moment where your competitors they can't compete you have all the shrimp and you become a millionaire and you give Bubba's mama a big check and and uh, Lieutenant Dan becomes, you know, your your second in command and, and everything takes Lieutenant, off. And Lieutenant gets magic legs. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's true. That's true. So, yeah, he was hurting until... until uh, uh, the storm a, wiped a disaster, out all the other boats. A disaster, a disaster happened, yeah. 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 Uh, that that's an extreme. I think going moving forward, we need to take lessons to where lessons from sustainability, and also lessons from uh, uh, computers uh, last century, that they didn't overtake things overnight. They slowly began to work their way in uh, to be part of the culture, and I think uh, resiliency within the supply chains need to be, work its way in uh, to the culture to where. Well, th- there's a spectrum. Uh, well, I don't want to get too much into it, but uh, there's a spectrum. Uh, you can have resiliency and not resiliency. Again, it's not just either or. Uh, it is uh, you have no resiliency, uh, then you have resiliency. Uh, resiliency is costly. But the point is, in between here, uh, you have the ability uh, to respond to things on a short-term basis called agile supply chains or responsive supply chains. And so as you build up your responsiveness, you can react to short changes in the market, but reacting to short in the market, in the supply, and short changes, small changes. But as you become much more uh, uh, agile and responding to, to small changes, then you can incorporate ability to react to larger changes into more significant uh, uh, impacts to your supply chain. And you just build that in slowly and slowly and slowly. And so um, people, supplies that, the supply chain that will do that are people with a vision, uh, with their feet solid on the ground, make sure that they make a profit, but also with an eye to the future, with a vision to know that this is where we need to go. And so you don't just abandon today for some sci-fi future, 
but you don't ignore what has to be there in the future by just focusing on today. Mm-hmm. So you have to have a combination. But if you're McKinsey, you just sell someone on your leaning plan, book a couple of years of after work, they see, uh, they see profit, you know, they reduce cost, improve profit. You know, you walk away with whatever the hundreds of thousands of dollars of consulting fees and everything's fine until they face adversity. And then they might call you back in to consult again. It's like, oh, what you showed us worked until, you know, a stiff wind blew. Now we need your help again. So it's like it kind of benefits you from a consulting business model to give someone something that's temporary. Well, you have to bring to the, the McKinsey's of the world have to bring to the table options. They have to know how to do it, bring together options. And uh, the people you go to are not the SMEs, the small to medium enterprises, because they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. You go to the large enterprises, the large enterprises that have extended supply chains. They have the ability to develop that resiliency. That's where the, that's where they have to go. And I think they need to partner with a lot of the large, huge organizations, the the, the, uh, the large global supply chains, not just United States, United States, Europe, China, South America. Uh, you have to, and also Asia, you have to have global supply chains and they have to start building it. And by the way, they are. Mm-hmm. There are IBM is doing it and they're starting to do it. It just had the pandemic will just accelerate it. Yeah. Everything's it's been not exposed. Going, yeah, it's not going back the way it was, David. Uh, not only supply chains, but our society is not going to go back the way it was. Mm-hmm. And actually, we've seen like world wars, World War One, World War Two. Our world changed. Well, now we have a pandemic. Our world's going to change. Mm-hmm. So when it changes, let's think about it and let's change for the better. Yeah, I think that's a good sentiment to end on, don't you? That's right. So when you have a disaster, it's difficult dealing with it. But as humans, Americans, Europeans, whoever you are, as humans on this earth, when you come back from disaster, you come together and make things better afterward. And you improve. Yes, indeed. Shall we wrap this episode up? Sounds good to me. Would you like to say the tagline? Say the line. Okay. Sons of Sequoia tell everyone, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.